Okay, so anyway, this guy, I believe, just, I didn't speak to him, but I know him from Yeshiva many years ago. I think he somehow was involved in the prank, just uh, knowing him well. But he, he is a very generous guy, but he, um, I think part of it is, in this case, is a PR ploy, um, in the sense of he's, he's gotten all over the news, he's been, uh, but again, I don't know the, the facts of the story yet, I don't think anyone knows the facts, but uh, so I, I, there was a lot of, over the weekend, over the last week, a lot of interesting ethical dilemmas that arrived with, with uh, as far as the Powell Boys concerned, so I want to discuss some of them. The question of people ask me, are you allowed to play? There's no question you're allowed to play. It's not considered gambling in the sense, in the true sense of the word. Um, and even gambling, as we discussed in the past, it's not clear that prohibited in Jewish law, unless you're a chronic gambler. Um, questionable. Why is it, how would you not consider it gambling? <laughs> meaning, no, I'm saying it's not considered gambling in the sense of stealing. Meaning the, the, the issue, the halachic issue of gambling. Well, I, I understand okay. you, it may or may not be permissible if it is gambling, but I don't understand how you, somebody could say it's not gambling. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll explain what I mean when I say that. I mean it from the halachic perspective, from the Jewish law perspective, because the issue with gambling in Jewish law is, and as we're going to discuss, is 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 not an issue of gambling per se. The issue is, do I have a right to the other person's money? Because the assumption is, the Talmud discusses, the assumption is when you bet, when you make a bet with someone, so the assumption is this person's only doing because they think they're not going to lose the bet. So in essence, the Talmud says there might be an issue of stealing the money, so to speak. When you're dealing with a pool like this, um, in such high numbers, and it's not a private person, so those issues are not applicable. That's, that's, that's what I meant. Is it you know, psychological gambling or legal gambling, or, you know, in, legal, in the legal terms, yeah, maybe yes. But talking about from the halachic perspective, so it wouldn't be considered a problem of keeping the earnings if you win, as opposed to in other cases of gambling, um, there is that concern. Yeah. What, what about the sense of uh, gambling with God? Oh, if I do that's this... We're going to talk about that. That's a great question. That's what, that's what we're getting to. You got a you paper? So we're going to talk about that. So, so a few scenarios... First, we're going to discuss some scenarios, and then we'll uh, we'll get to your question. But that's a good good part case of uh, that's part of the question. How does it work with as far as uh, faith is concerned and things like that? So it's a good point. So so I found these are all. This is a series of books from one author I happened to meet in Israel. They're all originally written in Hebrew, recently translated, and he happens to discuss some of these scenarios. I went through. All, he's he usually has these interesting type of questions. Um, in the, during the summer I was in Israel, I happened to meet him the first time and told him that we used some of his material in classes. So, so most of these scenarios here are taken from his book. His name is Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein. Very uh, interesting rabbi, he lives in Israel. So, so scenario number one, and we'll go through the scenarios and then we'll discuss some of the issues. So scenario number one is uh, Bob was on his way to buy a lottery ticket. He met Tom who was also buying a ticket. And they agree that they'll each partner each, each other's ticket and the potential prize. Okay, so so they they said, listen, I'm going to buy a ticket. You're going to buy a Powerball. Let's we'll both buy them. Each choose our own numbers, but and we'll split the pot. If any one of us wins, we'll split the pot. Um, uh, when he goes on, when they met after the drawing, and these, by the way, these are real case scenarios that he's discussing here, um, knowing that his ticket had already won twenty thousand dollars. Okay, so one of them looked up the numbers after the drawing, he knew he won. So then he went back to the other guy, um, and he said to Tom, since we don't know each other's numbers, let us each keep the tickets that we have. Sort of reneging on the deal. Um, and the other guy agreed. Um, Tom agreed that, you know, okay, we'll each keep our numbers in case each of us won. We can now keep it. Turns out, um, the reason why uh, Tom agreed is because Tom and actually, this guy had only won, $20,000. Tom had won $100,000 on his ticket. <laughs> so, 
that's why he agreed. I don't know if this really this sounds like a little far-fetched in this case. But this is he discusses this in the book. So the the question is, so which Talmud already know when they discuss dissolving the partnership. Okay, so the question is, do they have a right to do that? It gets into a key issue, which, um, which is more of a technical issue here, which is that um, at which point when you buy a lottery ticket, at which point you actually acquire the earnings? Is it at the time when I purchase a ticket? That means automatically, I'm, and it's a halacha question more than probably, I don't know legally how it works. I'm not familiar with legal acquisition, terms of acquisition. But the question is, when do I acquire the earnings? Is it immediately? Let's say in this case they were doing a partnership. So do they both, is the partnership immediate or do they have to actually what's called make a Kenyan, which means an acquisition at a later point after they, after the, the winning? Well, you're, <coughs> the partnership was before the drawing was even done. Right. So that's the question. What so does the partnership future, mean? That's a potential, it's like saying, can you buy the potential Right, but do they actually own the money at that point? Once, once the drawing's made, the money automatically belong to them, or do they have to actually now and go and you okay, know, let's say, bring it into their possession? Right. That's really the question. That's really what it boils down to. So we'll we'll get back to that in a second. Scenario number two. Um, this is a more an interesting case. It touches on some of the issues which we discussed in the past, um, which is like this. Scenario number two is someone sold his friend a lottery ticket after the drawing had taken place, and the seller was unaware that he was selling. <coughs> And sorry, and the seller was unaware. Typo here. Someone had sold the lottery after the drawing had taken place, meaning he sold him the actual piece of paper um, after the drawing took place. But the seller was unaware that he was selling the winning ticket. It's not a typo. It is correct. Let's put the comma in the wrong place. So meaning, so again, this guy, the draw, lot of the Powerball was on Tuesday, right? I think it was Tuesday. Right? Okay. So Tuesday, um, Wednesday morning. This guy goes ahead and sold his friend a ticket, saying, listen, I don't know if it won or not, I'm selling you the ticket. Okay? Um, so the question is, it turns out that it was a winning ticket. So is the sale binding or could be invalidated based on the fact that the seller would never have sold it had he been aware that his ticket had won? Meaning, the concept is, we've talked about in the past, in, in the context, in this class, what's something called a mekach to'ut. That means an erroneous sale, a mistaken sale. That means if I sold you something based on a certain assumption, okay, or um, or you didn't disclose certain facts about it, okay, so then that's in halacha and in, in, in the Texas state law also, I believe, called an erroneous sale. Meaning if I sold you a car that I knew had a defect, okay, that's the classical case. Um, I sold you a car that I knew had engine problems. I didn't disclose it at the time of sale, or a house for that matter, as we know. If you didn't make a disclosure and you knew there was a defect in the house, there was a plumbing problem, which you were not aware, and which you were aware of. So the law is that uh, the sale is retroactively, it's not, a, it's not a valid sale. Retroactively, the sale is null and void. Okay, now it doesn't only hold true for the seller for non-disclosure. It works both ways. In other words, it works for the buyer also. Let's say I, um, the question would be, that we, I think the context we discussed it in the past was, let's say you're selling something at a garage sale where you know, where you didn't know that there were, this was a Rembrandt. You thought it was just a painting. Had you known at the time that it was a Rembrandt, you, you wouldn't have sold it. Okay. Um, so according to, I don't, again, I don't know what the, what the legalities are. According to halach, according to Jewish law, the sale is retroactively null and void. Because had you known these facts at the time of the sale, you wouldn't have sold that, and that's called an erroneous sale in Jewish law. So you're not allowed to make mistakes? I mean, what, what do you people, mean mistakes? People can't make mistakes. You can make mistakes, but the sale is not valid. Again, if it's something that it's assumed, meaning not only assumed, everyone knows if you would have been aware of these facts at the time of sale, you wouldn't have sold it, so then, then, uh, then it's not a valid sale according to Jewish law. So the question is how it applies. No accident. You, you can't have accident. Then, then everything. Um, in, no, in, no in, no, what is, depends what, does, what you mean by that. If depends. If it was you should have known that fact. It was meaning meaning it was something that was the onus was on you to check it out, and then that's not. Then it is a valid mm -hmm. sale. So meaning it's a case where this is the typical, might be the typical case where I had no idea. Or, or uh, I'm trying to think of a, the, the Talmud discusses, and that's. But aren't you taking 
that list when you do something, how can you not be held responsible for taking a risk? You're taking a risk. Mm-hmm. And if you make a mistake, how can you suddenly say, oh, well, uh, if I had known this, I wouldn't have done so You're, you're, you're right, anyway. depending on the case. Meaning, again, if it's an inherent risk in selling something, so when I buy a lottery ticket, you're right. If I would have known that I would have lost, I probably wouldn't have bought it. But obviously that's not going to work. But if I would know for sure I'm going to lose, I wouldn't have bought the ticket. So I, that's true, right? Every time you buy a lottery ticket. So that doesn't work. Let me explain. <coughs> obviously that doesn't work because over there, you're, that is your, when you buy a lottery ticket, inherently there's risk involved. I buy a stock, so it could go up, it could go down. So of course that's not a mistake. I know what I'm getting into at the initial time of purchase. I know that there's only a 1 in 3 million, 300 million chance of winning a lot, winning this parable. So that's not a mistake. I'm aware of the facts that there's risk involved. Okay. But when I'm selling something at my garage sale, and, and it's clear to me that this, yeah, I'm putting a $2 sticker on it right now, or 50 cents, right? <coughs> that is what we're saying is, it's clear that I'm only selling this because I don't think this has any value. Well, no, if I would no, believe this has value... There's no clear there. There's no, you're, you're selling something and you're, if you're, you're taking a risk too. You take a risk when you do something. Everything we do is inherent risk. So why can't you be held responsible? No, you made the wrong decision. There's a difference between risk, risk and not being aware of the facts. Meaning, according to Jewish law, the Torah says like this. That you can't rip someone off. That means if you even mistakenly sold something more... It works both ways with the buyer and the seller. That it's either above or below the sixth of its going of the value of the going rate for that, and that's that sale is void because because the, the Torah says, and you're right. Is it ethical? Meaning, were you should you have checked? Depending on the case, but the Torah says the you, we don't want to cheat people, and in a certain sense, that cheating people. He, I didn't know this was a Rembrandt. Okay. So the question is, if I wasn't aware this is a Rembrandt, so, I mean, I just lost, you know, how, half a million dollars. Make a mis- how can anyone, like, like help be held responsible for making a mistake? If they can all say, well, I didn't know, or well, I was ignorant. Well, I mean, you're talking saying, about in, in business? No what, what's your, what are you saying, in business? Yes, we're not, we're not excusing a mistake if someone killed someone or someone violated the law. But this is not the issue here is there's a concept of erroneous sale. If I wouldn't know, for example, even a marriage, by the way, this is something going on in the country as a case. But let's say a person married someone and the person didn't disclose that they, have, they can't have children. Okay, so according to Jewish law, I don't know how it works in American law, that marriage is not a valid marriage because it was an erroneous <coughs> transaction. The marriage is also tra- it's a legal transaction. So it was meaning if there was no disclosure and the person should have disclosed this fact, so then the transaction is not valid. So the distinction is, and it strikes me as pretty immaterial whether they're lottery tickets or anything else. That, that, that's really immaterial. What's, what, material? what's material is disclosure, uh, the disclosure element. And mistake only comes into play if somebody had an advantage, an illegitimate, what I'm going to call an illegitimate advantage to knowledge. So the fact that, you know, I'm selling something in a garage sale at $3 and you come along and you're an expert and you know it's worth $3 million, there's no, there's no civil remedy to reform that. But in yeah. Jewish law, there is. So that's the difference. So the so point is like this. Now, if, 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 however, I've misled you. No, so even without this. But if I just so come for example, up and you're, you're selling. So let's say mm-hmm. there's a case going on right now, which I'm privy to, not here in Houston, but, but uh, it's a national case, which is a lot of discussion amongst rabbis, which is, it wasn't a, you're right. If there's no disclosure, do you agree? If there wasn't disclosure, one second. No do you agree? Do you agree? If there's no disclosure and the person was aware of the fact, that's the law in the no state of Texas. No one knows whether it's a winning ticket or not. Huh. How could there be disclosure? It doesn't. Well, no. uh, now, now we're talking about if there if there was. So in in example one, he did know. So you owe a duty to partners to disclose. Mm-hmm. So th- there was knowledge. Okay. In example one, for both sides. On both, well, only on one side. But, okay. One thing, I want to finish the marriage case, I just want to tell you. So the issue is, even if there was, even if the person wasn't aware of it at the time of the marriage, so they had no, obviously they couldn't disclose it, but that illness, let's say a person was, had, was uh, schizophrenic, they didn't know about it, okay, at the time they got married. 
Maybe it wasn't ever diagnosed, so they couldn't disclose it. But the fact is, I got just like a, it's a lemon law, just like a car. Not to not to compare marriage to a car, buying a car. There are some comparisons. But the the, the point is, just like if you buy a car, and even to, let's say the lemon law says that if this car has a major defect in it, the sale is null and void, right? So you cannot make the argument. What do you mean? So you take the risk when you buy a car. The assumption is I'm buying a new car. This is not a defective car. Okay, so even if the seller was not aware of the defect at the time of the sale, but if the car had a defect, the sale is null and void. You agree? Okay, but how did so, that apply so the to the same, One second. So the same thing in a marriage. If meaning, if someone married someone and there was a major defect in a person, they were not aware. Include mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 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 now the question here is. Long list. <laughs> so now look at the case of the Rembrandt. You know, the top of in the garage sale. Go on and on. It, it's not a defect. On the contrary, there it's, it's a benefit. But the point is, if I there was for the for the seller there, there was looking at it as a defect, meaning he was selling it not knowing it's a Rembrandt. Okay? You're right. If he's supposed to, and that's really going to be the answer, if he was supposed to do the due diligence, he should have checked, so then, you know, he should have uh, assessed it. So I don't know what the answer in the case of the Rembrandt is. But there are cases where I'm just trying to soften it for you. You can, you can disagree, but the point is there are cases where even without disclosure, the fa- if the facts, if there was an F in a defect, or in this case, a, a benefit, to the extent that it was obvious that this person wouldn't have sold it, had he known about that, it was obvious to anyone. No one would have sold it had he known. So then, um, maybe that would, that that would nullify the sale in the same way. You don't have to agree. So I'm trying to Using the, make again, you think I'm not crazy. What if yes. the purchaser was ignorant at the time? Does it make a difference for the Jewish? I mean, the purchaser was ignorant that. Well, he thought it was a, some painting at three dollars, and he just bought it for his hang in his house. Yeah, well, it's irrelevant. Sticks on his the wall, and his son says, "Oh, by the way, you've got a Rembrandt here." Oh, really? I didn't know. Yeah, but that's mm-hmm. not the point. The point is I didn't know. I for the seller. The issue is there that the seller was So he would be required to buy or be required to inform the seller at that time. I'll come back yes. to him and say, "Yo, oh, by the way." In Jewish law, yeah, time. probably, probably that sale will be known. I'm, yeah, I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't have seen it this time. But the point is here, so, so there's two, so if you look at the answers there for both these scenarios. The first one is, it's actually, this was written, this uh, response was written, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing around four, three, four, 300 years ago, in 300, 200, 300 years ago. Okay, so someone named the Marsham, it's an acronym for his name, um, and he quotes the Talmud that discusses that there was a case like this, uh, which you're not going to like this case, David, but the case is, so there was a drought in the city in, in Babylonia called Nardia. Talmud discusses this case, a major drought. There was no food to be gotten. We actually discussed this here in the past, this case. And uh, <coughs> people in the town had to move because there was no food, there was no grain in the, in the area because there was a drought. So everyone started selling, putting their homes in the market. They were selling their homes in order to relocate to another city. Um, okay. And then what happens is, after the sale of many people sold their houses, all of a sudden, three boats come into port because before they, you know, they knew where the boats were. Three boats show up, major boats, with full of stocks full of grain. Okay, and everyone now can stay in the city. So the, the Talmud says, the rabbis ruled, uh, the rabbi in that case, because Rav Nachman ruled, that the sales, they, the sales of their homes are null and void. Because it was clear to everyone, they only sold their homes <coughs> thinking the fact is because they're going to have to move. Because everyone's going to have to leave this area. Once now, retroactively, we see that the grain came in, it was clear they didn't, they wouldn't have sold their homes knowing the boats were coming in in a few weeks. If they would have known these boats were coming in with grain, they never would have sold their homes. So Sedgers of Rav Nachman and Talmud, therefore their sales are retroactively not I think not that a, saves people from making bad, bad deals. If everybody said, had yeah. access to, to, to full knowledge... Is that a Jew, the only Jew to Jew, or are they talking also knowledge? No, everybody had access to, to the knowledge, to, to the ability to ascertain the information. But no, you don't get, get it reminds me, uh, you know, here in our own city, we had the Memorial Day floods. People closed the day before. They got the benefit. They don't get to, you know, the buyer doesn't get no, to say, so well, I don't want to, you know, it flooded the next day. No, I think it was different, I'll tell you. What's the issue um, during the Napoleonic Wars that the Rothschilds were sending carrier pigeons and they got information about the war and they were buying all the bonds and people were dumping them? And that, using that, using this example, they should give all that money back. If we're dealing with, it doesn't matter. But is that, that example in, in any number of other examples? Right. I mean, you're using knowledge. Well, so I'll tell you the difference between the flood. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that knowledge. case. Once I don't know what the case is, but one second, the case of yeah. But over there again, it's like he said before. That's a question of gambling. It's risk. 
Here, the point is here. Let me let me let me explain. All, all, transa all transactions are are. are if they knew so, Britain was going to win the war, they would have sold their bonds. No, what I'm saying is, the day before the flood, there was no stipulation in this. There was no reason they're selling their houses. They closed their houses because they wanted to sell their houses. It had nothing to do. They didn't know wait, it was going to flood. No, no. What I'm saying is the information. Yes, the next day it happened the flood. That was just. It happens to be, but there was no stipulation. They weren't selling their house for any reason that was known to anyone. They were selling it because they're moving into a condo. Right? Okay. As opposed to here, what Rav Nachman is saying is, it's clear, and it was clear today to everyone in that city, they were only selling it for one purpose, because there was a drought. So now that the, now, that if, those meaning if they would have been privy to the information, at the time of the sale, of course they wouldn't have sold the house. It's not, but I'm saying, but I'm saying it's different. Do you hear the difference between no, the flood? It's not the flood. They weren't selling it for any for any motive. Motives for buying and selling is a very slippery slope. Um, that could be. You know, one selling it for money, one selling it because he, the guy selling it because the of the drought could have been saying, I got this schlemiel who's buying today, and there's a drought out there. I'm happy to get get. You know, five hundred dollars. This idiot's buying it. It's going to be worth three hundred dollars. You're right. It has to be. Well, therefore, it says the time. It has to be obvious to everyone the motive that he sold. I mean, if it's obvious as day, you're right. If it's there's there's other options, other reasons why he might have sold it, then you're right, and we have no proof. But the point is, in this particular case, it's saying it was clear the reason why they sold it, and therefore that was like a stipulation of sale. I can make a stipulation myself. I'll come back to the right. Memorial Day flood. So right after. You had a bunch of people selling in Ireland who were selling because their homes flooded. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So, right. So what does that have to do with the guy who sold the day before? He clearly it, it, he was selling for it's a because he was of selling. motivations of, of why people were selling. Some people were selling before for business. Some people were selling the next day, saying it flooded. I don't know what to do. So no, but I'm and saying other people the bought. people selling the day before the flood. See, we don't know their motive, and therefore there's, so, there's no nullification of but the sale. The day after, Here we know but their the motive. Day, the day after they sold because it flooded. Yes. Right. So right. So those people yes. See, right, if retroactively, let's say now, the, somehow the good, you know, they would get, uh, you know, their, their house would be restored to its original. So exactly. So, so three days later, there now comes federal aid to rebuild your house. And the people are did you get suggesting, that, right. People are lined up for aid. Are you suggesting they can now say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa I know I sold it to you, but now there's federal aid. I'm gonna." I if there would be, well, let's say, let's say, let's say, after they sold, it would be clear that let's say they're selling because it's a flood zone, and then they change the floodplain, right? Two, the day after the guy sold it, it's clear everyone's selling their houses. The cities make them sell their houses because this is zone no, one. One second. Let's, let's say I'm yeah. just saying it was zone one floodplain. I'm just taking an extreme case to try to bring out the example, and then the next day. So they, a lot of people put their houses on the market, they sold them. The next day, the city announces that, we're, that it's no longer a flood zone, it's changed. Insurance companies now deem you as zone three. So the question in that case would be, is that an erroneous sale? They only sold it, it was clear, because the city told them, the insurance company said, we can't insure you, it's a zone one. The next day they announced, after the sale, that this is considered zone two. That would be... That's that's what this case is about. Meaning, could you as it was a clear. Right. So I don't know what legally in Alaska you can. Meaning, legal. What we're saying is, if it's clear that the motivation for sale was, it's sort of like a stipulation in your sale. I'm selling it because insurance company tell me it's not insurable. Okay. Now the next day they announce now it is insurable. So now the question is, my sale still valid? So legally, it probably is. I'm guessing. But uh, but uh, in uh, Jewish unless, law, unless the buyer had somehow illegal access to that information. If they just had access to that information because they were smarter. Sort of the, the carrier they got a carrier pigeon okay. that made from the California said, here comes the floods, and all and the communications And, and the seller didn't happen to read the Houston Chronicle that day saying insurance right. is now available. Tough luck to the seller. That's very, I understand what Rabbi Nachman was doing, and certainly he's more than I, but it sounds very That's difficult good. though if you're just talking a, about a business transaction to say, oh, retroactively, even though they were selling it just because of the family. Listen, there's no it's question it's a slippery slope, and that's why with this marriage case I'm dealing with, is every rabbi's protest, was a rabbi who annulled the marriage retroactively based on the fact that this guy had emotional issues at the time of marriage. Um, so which he wasn't well, watching the so, so I, have a, those, I have a question about those facts. Yeah, it is. It, it, Why is it yeah, I agree. I think it is. Why is but, it but I have a question about the facts. Same thing. Was it five days later that they sought the annulment, or or fourteen years later? 
because uh, my sympathy my sympathies of right. 14 years passing, you get a lot of chance to observe. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you think it's better if it's later? Or 14? No. No, right. Oh, right. No, so I mean, it's right. I mean, five days. You but the point is, so right. the 14 years, years, years of, of <laughs> my mother-in-law really sucks. I'm out. You mean there's no statute of limitations on a marital or a contract? That's all I'm asking. You're purposely hiding. No, so that's non-disclosure. So that's a different. Right. And also, is a problem. But that's that's what David was pointing out before. That's all. That's clear. There's non-disclosure yeah, even that's in America. Right. We're talking about where the guy, even himself, he wasn't diagnosed. He didn't know that he he okay. clearly had some problems, but he didn't know how. Or or in this case, by the way, he thought it was curable, um, and then she found that it wasn't curable. So that's when she filed for divorce. divorce. Period. You know, That's when she filed for divorce, when she found out it was, she thought it was curable. Because Allah is, by the way, if you stay with the, with the so sale, if you keep the car, let's say I buy a defective car, and then I don't return it, I drive it around for a week, then I return it. I knew on day one it was defective. So that's it. You okay, can't. You lost. Yeah. You have to return it immediately. Same thing with a marriage. If you don't return it immediately, so the there is a statute of limitations. You can return them immediately. Right, so if you don't <laughs> call it in immediately, the defect. So this, what she claimed in this case was, and she has proofs from you know psychiatrists saying that they told her it was curable. The day she found that it was incurable, she filed for divorce. Um, you have to get and how many, when, time-wise, do we know what that time was? It was five, they were married for no, three said, years or three? Two, two, three years. No, but he thought she divorced the day when she found it could not uh, be curable. hundred percent, but I mean, three years, okay, I mean... Uh, it's I, actually three months four, after she found it. Fourteen, I, I'm not giving <laughs> any benefit, but three years, I mean, so I guess it's probably when you're newlywed, you're not going to talk about these sicknesses. You, so three years, I think, is probably like, close. But listen, it, it is, I agree, 100% slippery slope, and that's why there's this rabbi who didn't know it, sorry, Greenblatt, he's getting major flack. I mean, from all over the world, people are, rabbis are dissing him. And of course, I, I don't know anywhere today, maybe in uh, Saudi Arabia, but anywhere else in the world, it's a no questions asked. So I'm not sure what the issue no, is. No, because in Jewish law, the husband has to agree to give the get. So he, the problem is he's holding back from giving the gift. He's not giving the gift. She's stuck in this limbo position where she can't remarry until she receives. You're right. Legally, she's divorced. Uh, right. They have we, a civil divorce. Right. The issue right. is that we can talk about the ethics of that. Right. Yeah, that's a whole different. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now, so B. So get to the, get to the edge of this. Well, she's trying to get a divorce or a note. Well, she wants a divorce, but he's not giving one. So she. So therefore, she went the other route, which is I never Yes, yes, that's a no. No means it doesn't happen in Jewish law. But this rabbi, Rabbi Greenblatt, did it in this case, specific case. It's five years that the husband hasn't granted her a divorce. She filed for the one she wants to She's stuck for five years. How much of that, I wonder, is the rabbi <coughs> wanting to do right by her and right, let her so out? That's the question. Yes. As opposed yeah, to the reality that, that yeah. it, the have law does not provide yeah. for Yes, yeah. so it is. That's the, that's the debate going around the world now. So anyway, we want to get back to a lot to parable. So um, marriage is not winning the lottery. That we all agree. Um, okay. So on the other hand, um, so so look at B here. The answer says on the other hand, the seller. So the Marsham says, so let's start from A. Sorry, the Marsham quotes the Talmud to discuss the drat and idea. Um, another typo there. There was no grain to be bought, but there was no grain to be bought. People sold their houses in order to relocate to a city with sustenance. Shortly afterwards, a large flotilla of ships arrived with sufficient grain to feed all the residents. But Nachman ruled that all the home sales were null and void since they were sold on a false premise. So according to this, he's saying this with the lottery ticket too. If I had no idea this was a winning uh, um, ticket, or the first case, where I, um, where I was giving up my, my ticket, 50% of the partnership, thinking not knowing he's a winning ticket, so, so one could make that same argument. Okay, that's what the rabbi wants to apply it here. It's a similar situation. If I had known the facts at the time of giving up my partnership, or in scenario number two, um, when I bought the ticket, of course I wouldn't have sold it. And therefore, based on Rav Nachman, it should be, that's one side of the coin, it should be, the sale should be null and void. But on the other hand, that's B, the seller could have verified, and this is where it gets to what you say, meaning if his due diligence was to go and check his numbers, and he didn't do that, it's all over the news, as David's saying. If you, I mean, if you had a ticket and you're an idiot, Wednesday morning you woke up and you didn't check your ticket, and you threw it out and you, and you gave it into the cleaners, okay, so that's your fault. So, so on the other hand, he's saying the seller could have verified this ticket and won. Since he had not done so, he cannot claim it was a mistaken sale. Meaning, again, if the due diligence was on you to check the numbers and you didn't, where again, or like in the case of the drought, if they could have checked if the chips were coming in and then they made they sold their house, so that's their fault. Okay, 
if right the guy who closed the day before the Milan flood, if he knew, if he if he could have heard the weather and saw that there was a flood coming and he still sold the house, then obviously he's an idiot for selling it at regular price the day before the flood, right? Knowing that tomorrow there's a chance it's going to flood. So the, the point is not selling. He was smart to sell. It's the buyer. No, that, what that's I'm saying what I'm is he sold it for full. Right, the seller sold it for. Oh, you the buyer. Yes, sorry. Yes. After the flood, the buyer. Right. So the buyer didn't check the the weather, and, and there was a hurricane coming that night. But so everyone checked the weather. It wasn't a flood coming. That was the problem. Okay. Okay. But it, okay. So My point is the example. So, so one second, I just want to finish the, what he says here. So he says he knowingly sold it without concern if he had one. I mean, the fact that he could have checked his numbers, he could have opened the you know got on the internet that day. He didn't check the numbers, and he sold it without checking it. So then, that, then he's an idiot. Of course, he can't claim it's an erroneous sale now that he finds out he won. But if he did not know the drawing took place, but the question would be in a case where he didn't know the parable happened, he thought it's happening on Thursday. Okay, and today's Wednesday. And he went and sold it on Wednesday thinking the drawing didn't take place yet. So then he was unaware of the ticket's real value. So then he's saying the same would apply. That Rav Nachman's principle might apply. That had he known the information, of course, he wouldn't have sold it. Okay, so, so again, it's not clear. There's two sides of the coin here. I just think the buyer who is doing absolutely nothing wrong by purchasing the house is is basically getting the short end of the stick here. Okay. In, in this Someone case. has to get the short end. The question is, selling no. the buyer? No, no, no. That's what Some I'm saying. One of them is going to get the short, the short end. end. They sold their house because they wanted to move to the. And I'm talking about this one, not the flood, the drought. That was a conscious decision. They could have. They could have taken a horse and gone on a vacation or a trip, excuse me, and they didn't have to sell, but they sold. Okay, flood or not, I bought the house whether or not there was a drought. I'm now taking the risk that there's going to be a drought here. So why are you penalizing me, the buyer, for buying a house if the ship comes in or not? Uh, you again, see what I'm saying? I, let, let me explain. I'm just, just give you some background. I want to get to the other scenarios. Okay. Quickly, Go ahead. The, the thing is in any business transaction, in Jewish law, again, I don't know enough about the legality, there's something called that. That means there has to be agreement on both sides. Okay, obviously, and, and I'm sure in the American system it's the same thing, but there's more than that. It, it means we have to know, let's, I, let's say I make a stipulation myself, only selling it if it rains tomorrow, or if it doesn't rain, or, floods, or if it doesn't flood to, to next week. So of course you can put that stipulation. And so what the, the Talmud says, what the Talmud says is a, a non-verbal stipulation that's obvious to everyone. That's considered as a written stipulation. That's really what the Talmud is saying. I, mean, I, don't, I only have in mind, if it's clear to everyone, clear as day, that I only have in mind to sell it with stipulation A, even if I didn't verbalize that stipulation, but it's obvious and how to everyone. And how is that stipulation? What? One second. So it's obvious. So that's, that's really what we're saying here. If it's obvious to everyone that had I known this fact, I wouldn't have. So I'm only selling it because based on, on facts A. And now it turns out facts are B, so then then it's not a valid okay, sale. That's what I'm saying. So that, it's not the issue of buy or sell. What's that window? Like Maybe David's example, it was 14 years for, for the marriage. What's the, what does he give the window? If it's the next day, I, I might be able to go back even though yeah, it's Yes, so like difficult. I said, there is, a, there a, is a time stamp on it. As a, as a buyer, if you can only renege immediately once you realize the defect. If you wait one day with the defect and you kept it for one, you kept on driving the car, then it's it. You lost your chance. You have to protest as soon as you're aware of the defect. Okay. But everything is a matter of most commercial activities, especially more so in retail, maybe more so than anything else. There's a there's a sense of one person has more knowledge than the other. A jewel, you go to a, an average person goes into a jewelry store does not have the knowledge of diamonds that the guy who owns a jewelry store. So and it's also <coughs> a diamond is very hard. It's not like a stock where there's a listed in the paper how much these are worth and it's all graded and everything else so at what point you know, why can't there I mean that would almost disrupt the whole purchasing process if a buyer can say you know I didn't know this was not worth so again if there was no disclosure if there was something that should have been the diamond has a major flaw and he didn't show it to that's a matter of disclosure so that's ripping someone yeah, off without, without flaw he could have overpaid for it anyway but there was no flaw I mean 
there's also the due diligence. Again, there's also the issue of due diligence here, which is if he was supposed to have done his due diligence, which I'm assuming if you're buying a so big doesn't you due need to do that. To, it does. I'm saying if he should have checked his numbers. To the boat. Well, right, if he's, they're selling the house, but no, the boat. No, because there was no, that's what I'm saying. Over there, it was impossible to know whether uh, the boats were coming in. They did the due diligence, was this house is worthless because no one's going to live in this right. town because it's a drought for the last five years and it's going to be over the next five years. No, there, there was no way to know that the boats were coming in. I don't see it's how great. that's any different than the Maryland folks selling the house and five days later waking up, reading the paper, and saying, uh, there's now insurance for your loss. We we've drudged the bayou and it's never going to flood in Ireland again. No, I, I no, I, I don't oh, so even go there. No, exactly. I don't even. I go. And then the, it the, floods. The insurance is sort of like floods. the flotilla coming in. Now there's money to fix your house. So I don't know what. The, so you're right. In that case, I don't. And that might be different. If it's clear, they wouldn't have sold it. And they don't affect, and maybe you're right. I don't know. I mean, to me, it's exactly the flotilla. There's right. money. Okay, go, okay. Go no, get it. Zoning change in a property. I mean, there's a whole lot of political issues that can pop up and affect the value. You want to say? I think with the jeweler, it's his. It's his Parnessa. He needs to disclose. That's his business. He can't just claim he didn't know. No, he's saying the buyer. The, 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 the seller has much more knowledge than the buyer. Yeah, right, and should just true. Many retailers. Yeah, not the same. This not this. Not. There's a flaw. There's no flaw. I understand. He can't say. He can't sell it with a flaw. No, and he can't say it's three carats if it's two. No. But, but if he says this is a nice diamond, right? It's a nice diamond. Right. Three carats got a little that. flaw, and here's what we're doing, and you buy right. it. But, but again, in Jewish law, if you get them off so more than a sixth, six right? Law, I six percent. Yeah, exactly. Sixth then. of the value that would be but a again, it's That's called ripping them off. Hey, so let, I, well, we need to go. We need to get to the good stuff. Uh, okay. Thank <laughs> <laughs> I hear. I agree with everyone's problems. <laughs> okay, scenario three. David had a great relationship with Shlomo, ran a lottery booth. This is a real case in Israel. They would pay in advance for the lottery tickets and would then phone in to dictate the numbers to choose for that week's drawing. So every week he had a standard thing. He would have his credit card, whatever the case was. He can't pay with credit cards for lottery tickets. But uh, you, you, he would... Uh, in Israel, by the way, it's, it's big. It's called Toto. They have these booths all over the street. Mm -hmm. Toto booths. Okay, and then, so he would every week call in his numbers and tell him what to write, what to fill in, which circle to fill in. The next day, David saw the winning numbers. The paper reels, he had won $5,000. And he went to pick up the winning ticket from Shlomo the next day, the, the Toto guy. He was crestfallen when he realized that Shlomo had made a mistake in entering one of the numbers, causing his ticket to be worthless. So the guy wrote down, he dictated to him the numbers. The guy filled in one wrong circle. Okay. The question is, he came to the rabbi, this is a real case, he said, the guy owes me $5,000. He caused me a loss of $5,000. What do you say? It's a tough one, but I don't think he's responsible. I don't either. The lottery, I don't There's think he's responsible. I mean, he might be responsible to give him the dollar for the ticket back, yeah. but I'm not sure you could go. That's right. my last question, that's B. In the absence of any consideration for the act, he doesn't owe him anything. He didn't pay him to do it. Uh, you, have have, you have to have good, good valuable point. consideration. I mean, if, if he I mean, would have if he would have hired him. It was in a favor. But you're saying if it was an employee that I sent to buy the lottery ticket and the guy messed up, then I, he would be responsible. Not as an employee, but if, if if I paid you $10 to fill these numbers in, and we have, we have a business arrangement, you're my lawyer. And you messed up. And you screwed up, you have liability. It's just a, amongst friends, you don't have liability. And if you're doing that, you, then you... We're going back to here. He's got to do his due diligence. Let me see the tickets for the drawing. I mean, right? No, but David's saying, I mean, in a case where I hired you, this is your job. So then you would be, you know, said, I don't have to do diligence. Listen, this is your job. That's why an architect or engineer or lawyer carries liability coverage <laughs> for mistakes. Rabbis don't, unfortunately. Wow. <laughs> I'll bet you, I, 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 so, I think you're not right about uh, that. I'll bet you. I'll bet I'll but bet you ra the, Rabbi at Beth Sheeran has liability insurance. Oh, so Torch, like the board, has liability insurance, but the okay, rabbi Okay, which runs to the rabbi. All right, so I mean, they blame don't it on the board. board. Blame it on the label. They have it for they, the rabbi. Uh, errors and omissions. Directors and officers. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so let's see. It's only because they, they're nervous. They made a spy. Okay, so then scenario four, similar case. We'll get to the answer in a second. Scenario four. By the way, you know, you don't need it. Really? You know? Because yeah. if you're judgment proof, you don't need to worry about liability insurance. No one's judgment proof, unfortunately. What's the answer? What's the answer? Okay, we'll get there. Scenario four. A Torah scholar was staying at the home of Jack. This is, by the way, a real case. Happened with the Chafetz Chaim. 
this is this case. Uh, Brian, what's this case? In real case, the chav, this occurred. It didn't happen with the Chavetz Chaim, but they came to the Chavetz Chaim for an answer. Torah Skylar, Skylar was staying at the home of Jack. It was the weekend of a big lot jackpot, which they had both purchased tickets for. So the, the rabbi and the host had both purchased tickets. The unscrupulous host figured that his guest, the scholar, having many good deeds in his merit, had a better chance of winning. <laughs> so in the middle of the night, he goes and he switched the ticket with the guest, with the rabbi. Switched tickets. The next day, when they announced the numbers, the host ticket, which he had given to his pious guest, won. Okay. So he tried explaining um, to the guest about the accidental switching, you know, by mistake fell out of my pocket into your pocket. Okay, they did just he really fell into your Did he really deserve the prize money since the ticket was originally his? So the question is, so they came to the Chafzheim, does he get his money? Should who's who gets the money? Who gets the prize? The rabbi get the money or the. Why would you be awarded something for something you did dishonestly anyway? You did what? Dishonest. Yeah, but the point is, listen, it's my ticket. I really bought it. So what? I own it. It's a question of a legal ownership here. So it's not just because you're dishonest doesn't mean you can't legally own something. I, I could be dishonest and still, I, if, if it's rightfully mine, it's rightfully mine. No because, it, no, because it's right. It's an intentional act. He gave it away. Yeah. It wasn't a mistake. So he gave it away. And he finished so recovery. So if he by taking away. the other ticket, once he's put down his ticket, he swapped it, he took the rabbi's ticket. He stole the other ticket. Acquire, so actually, he's he, committed. Actually, he's 0 for 2. <coughs> he, he doesn't have the rights to it when the rabbi won, and had he won, he would be obligated to give those, right. that money to the rabbi. So why? If why? you're saying if you're saying that legally it's a legal transaction, if I put it in his pocket, I'm giving it to him. So, so, what's so, so one, I oh, gave it to him. The other one was stealing. The other one, I, I stole. Oh, so it's two, two totally different sides of the coin, but they both lead to the same result. Okay. The it's rabbi has the rights to both. Okay, so it's a good point. So let's see. So to answer scenario three, so he says like this, Rizalbushtein says, there is no recourse in a human court of law, meaning th there's a concept in Jewish law called um, that means you're exempt in human court of law, but but don't worry, in heaven they'll, they'll get you. Okay, so, so that's a, meaning we can't do anything. There's no recourse here, but if you want to, you know, really you need to pay. And I, I, I've had this before, actually a case I told you about in the past where I stayed, I made a reservation in a bed and breakfast in Israel, and then I ended up canceling um, right before I went. Um, so, I, so the guy claimed, listen, you still have to pay me. So I can't get another, someone else to come. So I called, I saw as, as a rabbi, I felt like, you know, I could have just hung up and the guy has no idea where I am. It was just a phone reservation. Wasn't even internet, they got no information of mine besides my phone number. Um, but I felt bad, um, so I called the rabbi. So this is what the rabbi is. He said, you know, patu meaning you're exempt, technically speaking, but bedina shemaim, when you get up to heaven, if you if this guy really could, can't get another customer because of your reservation, then you're going to be obligated in heaven. So, so we ended up by paying him out. We, we came to a nice conclusion. Okay. But the point is, he says here, so there's no recourse in the human court of law for someone preventing you from profiting. So meaning, this really, what, he, what Chavetz Chaim was saying here is that you're just prevent. If you would have took money away from him, then that's stealing. But in this case... Um, we're going again, scenario three, which was the guy messed up on, on writing in the, circling in the numbers. Okay, so he's saying, the damage I caused to you was grammar. It was invert, meaning it was uh, what we call, uh, what's the word we, we used in the past? Um, causation. I caused you not to profit. I didn't cause you to lose money. It's because of me, you could have profited, you could have won your, the, the jackpot. But because I messed up in the world and put the number in the wrong circle, so I caused you not to profit. So that, halachically, there's no obligation. If I, if I just me screw you up in the sense of you're not going to profit, but not that you're actually losing money. Well, you lost it's potential money. Entry. Oh, so that's, that's number B. We'll get to that in a second. So it says he's not liable in the, in the, in the human court of law, uh, but is liable in the heavenly court. Chavetz Chaim said, and this is the key point I want to get to, which is your original question, of faith. He says numbers don't win the lottery, it's the person who wins the lottery. No, it's irrelevant to having switched tickets or not. Meaning, point this, now we're now going to get into the God issue of faith. If God wants someone to profit, so whether they have this lottery ticket or not, um, they're going to end up getting that money. Because if you're destined to win that money, 
So, so that was the case here. What the Chavetz Chaim was saying is the rabbi obviously was destined to win this money. Whether he would have switched the ticket or not, he would have won that money. He would have got that money. So irrelevant to you switching the tickets. You're switch, it's not the ticket who that, that wins. It's the person who wins. That was what the Chavetz Chaim said. Um, now, the, then we have Scotty's question. Mm-hmm. Is, does David still have to pay Shlomo for the ticket? I mean, what about the dollar? Does he have to reimburse him for the dollar? So that, I would assume, yes, in that case. Because... Um, for the actual dollar, two dollars, whatever the ticket cost, um, that you did damage him because he didn't get what he what he paid for. He paid for x x this, these numbers and he didn't get those numbers. Okay, so he's gonna have to reimburse him for the two bucks for the lottery ticket. Yes. But an expectation is not the same as full knowledge. And if everyone buys an ex- a ticket with expectation, they don't buy it with full knowledge of the result. I just, and right, you're right. Can. So you're 100% right. That's exactly what we're saying. So therefore, the ticket, the two bucks, is going to have to pay him because that's the, that's what the, you're paying for the expectation. I'm paying for the for the amount to dream. The dream costs two bucks. Most people know they're not going to win. No, no. I mean, there are a few people think they're going to win. Most people know they're not going to win. It's just about dreaming. It's really what's what it is. <coughs> you think about a lot of it is you're buying a dream. You're buying the day. You know, you have three days to, to dream a little. What you're gonna do with your money? But you know you're really not gonna win. So you're paying for the dream. So that he has to reimburse him because even though you could argue he had the dream, he was still able to dream. With the odds of two or three million to one, I mean, dream, I mean the is for people who are just bad at math. But, but how do you assign blame when it's it's an act of God. I mean, that says it's an act of God who wins the lottery. So how do you Yeah, but there's still the legalities of it. If at the end of the day I damage you, it's very nice. There's just two parts. There's the law and then there's the ethics. There's the faith part. We'll, get, we'll discuss the faith in a second. But the point is, they're, and they're not related. Meaning, legally, if, if this belonged to me, it's mine. Just because, you know, I didn't have faith. I did have faith. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But that's, a, that's a good point. So here, there's, I found three different quotes. Um, or two. First two was uh, interesting. Israel Salanta was the founder of the ethical Muslim movement in the 16, early, late 1600s, early 1700s. So he said like this, it was a fascinating case. He was once approached by a guy who was frustrated. He said, I play the lottery every week. It's interesting to see how in the 1600s the lottery was the same. Nothing changed. So the guy says, I play the lottery every week. And then it's great. Well, how come I don't win? I'm a pious Jew. I have faith in God. He's going to provide. So, so uh, he said. So he said it's because you don't have full faith. You lack faith. Mr. Salanta says, if you have full faith, you're going to win. That God will provide for you. you you're going to win. So he says the guy went and he goes and he bought a ticket. All right, this week he says, I'm going to have full faith. Give it, leave it. It's all up to God. So what happens? So a few days prior to the lottery, Mr. Salanta sent the guy to this house, to this guy's house, and he says, I'll make you a deal. I'll buy the ticket off you, and I'll give you 90 percent. If we win, you get 90 percent of the earnings. And the guy said, fine. So he sold the ticket to Israel Salanta's messenger. And, uh, and of course, they lost. Okay. So what happened? So, so he came back to Israel Salanta. had full faith. He said, you clearly didn't have full faith. You would have had full faith. You wouldn't have sold me the ticket um, for 90%. Even for, to lose your 10%. If you really thought you were going to win, you wouldn't have sold. So the fact that you sold to me proves you didn't have full faith. Okay. So people can, you can't say they have full faith. Um, now this gets to, now the other question is like this fascinating thing this um, which is this is a side point in Jewish fundraising so the Alter of Nevada who's another Musser uh, leader of the ethical movement he also lived in the mid 1700s he said like this he um, Alter by the means the old one the old one of Nevada so he said um, he also tried he would buy the lotteries for the sake of his institutions to support them which by the way that's what I do I buy well, I haven't done it in a while but I usually buy two tickets two lottos and the parable um, by two lottos on the first game I write on top in Hebrew I write because you have to write I don't trust myself because if I would win I write it in as soon as I buy it I write Kodesh Lashem which means this one's for God game number one's for God the second one I don't write anything so the second one's for me so I'm figuring like you know the point is I have a non-profit so even if I, the first one wins I can really give it to, to my organization <laughs> keeps wide out handed <laughs> so now by the way so when I bought the parable last week I did buy a parable so I wrote the first one I wrote Kodesh Lashem Holy, this one's for God. The second one, Chatzil Hashem, half for God. So I figure it's enough. <laughs> you know, this, this week it's so enough that we can split it with two, God. Are you buying one? No. You buy, oh, you, I'm buying you, one for God. I'm, I mean, so I'm the recipient, but I'll give it to God. Two, we're buying one. Are you? you I'm buying one for me, one for God. 
Does God get it after tax or before tax? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> just something but the bottom line is that he said after he lost many times, which I've been in that situation, for his institutions, he said, listen, it could be that Jewish institutions got to be built with, with sweat and tears. God's not giving There's no easy street. When you build a Jewish institution, you got to work for it. He says it's part, of the, it's part of building it. It's not, there's no such thing as easy street when you're building a, a Jewish institution. So I just want to end off the last thing, which is irrelevant, which is the question is, is a, the, does it show a lack of faith? I mean, if I truly believe I'm going to win, that God will help me win, so then you can't buy more than one ticket. Because if God's going to make you win, okay, then he can make you win with one. There's no point in buying 300 tickets. It's people that buy 1,000 tickets because that's a lack of faith. Because if you're supposed to get the money, you're going to get it with one. Okay, so if you buy more than one, this is a family. And that happens. That happens. Happens. People yeah. buy one ticket and they win. Right. Yeah, of course. So the, you're not even increasing your chances, by the way. The odds are like if you buy point oh. Yeah, you're not increasing. Your I think chances. you have to go to like fourteen, fifteen thousand before you increase your odds. Get into the one in two hundred and twenty thousand instead of two million. million instead of one in two. It's the. Right, so you need to end with this because we're over time. But the point is that so the family medrash says by Joseph in Egypt. So the Medrash says that when he was in prison, he was stuck in prison, and the butler, Pharaoh's butler, was getting out. So he told Pharaoh's butler, remember me, remind Pharaoh that I'm still here. And he said it twice. Okay, the Torah says, uh, he, the Torah, it says it in the Torah, he said it twice in the conversation. He said, remind Pharaoh about me. Remind him about me, remind him about me. So the Medrash says because he said it twice, he spent an extra two years in prison. Consequence, he was punished because Joseph didn't have the faith that it was God who was going to redeem him, and he said it twice, he spent an extra two years in prison. So I saw Chaim uh, Briscoe, who's a big rabbi, comments on this. He says, so there was a debate amongst these rabbis, what happens if he would have said it three times? That means he would have been three years in prison, because he showed a lack of faith. He said it three times. He would have been another year in prison. But if he only said it once, so, so one rabbi said this, and he only been one year in prison. Says, said Chaim Briscoe, no, it's not true, because as Jews, we have to do what's called ishtadlut. We have to work within the laws of nature. We can't just rely on God. So even though I have faith in God, so let's say I'm playing the stock market. We've discussed this here many times. You have to have faith. Listen, whatever is going to happen, God ordains to happen. But if you don't, if you're not, you've got to be in it to win it. If you don't play the lotto, there's no chance you're going to win. So you have to make what's called a minimum ishtadlut, an effort within the realm of nature. The parable, by the way, is not in the realm of nature. But we're talking about, let's say, the stock market. Let's say with something that's in this, I have to do something to, 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 to attain the money. Now the rest is up to God. But, but I need to do something. So Yosef had a right to say one time to the butler, remind Pharaoh that I'm still in jail to get me out of here. But once he said it twice, so says Rechaim, he showed, he, even the first time wasn't that he was having faith in God. He was showing a lack of faith in God, not only for the second time. He had to stay two years in prison, even though he had a right to say it one time. But the point is, once it's sort of like buying a second lottery ticket. Once I buy the second lotto, so I'm showing that even the first one, I don't really, it's not God that's going to give it to me, it's the state. So then you're showing a lack of faith in God. The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Shalom.